Our scripture reading for today is Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what he was eating, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, we ask today that you would you would be with us during this time. God, you would pierce our hearts through your word. And God, I pray that we would... Um, we would meditate on it as we learn from your word, God. And Father, we ask today that uh, it wouldn't only pierce our heart, but it would it would change our actions, Father, and it would change how we worship you through our life. And Father, we praise you and thank you for Jesus and the grace he bestows upon us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure many of you in here probably have or have had or have um, used an iPhone or a MacBook or an iPad or an iPod. And if you haven't used any of those things, I know almost for certain that most of you in here have had to have seen a Pixar movie. And I know that because there are so many children in this church. And if you have used any of these things or you've seen a Pixar movie like Toy Story or one of those types of movies, we have to thank a man named Steve Jobs for these things. You know, many consider Steve Jobs to be uh, one of the greatest visionary minds of our time. He revolutionized many products and created new things that many of us use on a daily basis. But unfortunately... Steve Jobs died an early death at the age of 55 on October the 5th, 2011, due to pancreatic cancer. But what's most tragic about Steve Jobs' death is that the cancer, which ultimately caused his demise, was curable. For Jobs to be cured, he would have to, he'd have to undergo a surgery to be saved from the cancer, to remove it. But according to Steve Jobs' biographer, Walter Isaacson, Jobs chose alternative treatments like acupuncture, dietary supplements, juices, and fasting instead of listening to his doctors and undergoing the routine surgery that they recommended. At the time of his death, Jobs was one of the richest men in the world, so cost of health care was of no concern for him. He could have, In fact, he could have hired the best doctors to do the surgery and to treat him. But according to Jobs... He didn't want to have surgery because he feared being opened. Jobs said, and I quote, I didn't want my body to be opened. I didn't want to be violated in that way. 
But according to Walter Isaacson, the biographer, he said there seemed to be more to his resistance than just the fear of surgery. Isaacson said this, he said, I think that Steve kind of felt that if you ignore something, if you don't want something to exist, you can have, quote, magical thinking. And it had worked for Steve in the past, especially pertaining to his work. Isaacson went on to point out that Jobs was notorious for relying on his own intuition, his own intellect, his own instinct. But however well his own intuition and magical thinking may have worked for him at his profession, Jobs' decision to not have the surgery that was recommended to him would ultimately cost him his life. Jobs progressively grew worse due to his refusal to have the surgery, and um, his friends and family consistently and constantly pleaded with him to have it, to try to change his mind. In fact, the current CEO of Apple is a man named Tim Cook, and he was one of Jobs' closest friends. And uh, after doing a lot of research about the type of condition Steve Jobs was in, he found out that he could actually donate his liver to Steve Jobs. And this would be the surgery that he needed to live. And so once, um, once Tim Cook found this out, he went to Steve Jobs excited and said, I know how we're, I know how we're going to save you. I'll give you my liver. And the, the liver, it's a regenerative organ. And that means that the donated portion of the liver will grow to a functional size inside of the recipient. And the portion of the liver that the donor keeps will also grow back to a functional size. So this is really a win-win situation. Cook said that he stopped by Jobs' home to make the offer, but to Cook's surprise, Jobs refused. Cook said, Steve cut me off at the legs almost before the words were out of my mouth. Steve said, no, I will never let you do that. I'll never have the surgery. And sadly, towards the end of his life, Steve Jobs admitted to Walter Isaacson that he deeply and greatly regretted not having the surgery at the beginning of his diagnosis because it could have saved him. Now, I don't tell you this story to shame Steve Jobs anyway. In fact, I, I actually believe he's one of the best visionary minds of our time. Great creative mind, a genius, really. But I do think it's safe to say that Steve Jobs didn't really die of his cancer. I think it would be more truthful to say what he died of was his own self-reliance. And to put it a little more harshly, I think Jobs died of his own arrogance. You see, Jobs had two separate opportunities in his lifetime to be saved from this cancer, but a a refusal to rely on someone outside of himself for healing and saving ultimately led to his death. So there's a lesson that Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees in this section of Scripture. And that lesson is this. Jesus rejects the unrepentant proud. I'm going to say that again. Jesus rejects the unrepentant proud. The basic belief of Christianity is we have to rely on someone outside of ourselves to be restored and healed and saved. And that someone, as we know, is the Christ. It's Jesus. But this is not what the Pharisees taught or believed. If you read through any of the Gospels, you will quickly start to notice that the Pharisees and Jesus were constantly in conflict with one another. So it's important to know who the the Pharisees were. 
The Pharisees were one of the three major religious societies among the Jews during this time of the New Testament. The others would be in the Sadducees and the Essenes, which aren't mentioned biblically, but we know a lot about them uh, just from history. But the Pharisees, they, you know, they oftentimes too, they get a bad, they really get a bad reputation amongst Christians today, and in part they should. But we need to acknowledge that the Pharisees, for the most part, were very well respected among the common men at the time. See, the Pharisees were known for being extremely zealous and passionate about purity and obedience to the Torah, to the law of God. And they were seen as upstanding citizens. Most people really respected the Pharisees. In fact, the Greek word for Pharisee means the separated ones. In other words, they separate themselves from the world by living in obedience to God's law. That's not a bad thing. But you often hear things in our society and in churches today like, um, Jesus hated the Pharisees because they were just so religious. But that's not true. In fact, it's, it's hogwash. Jesus never criticizes the Pharisees for their religious disciplines. Never once do you find in the Gospels where he condemns them for their passion for obedience. In fact, if you read about the Sadducees and the Essenes, you find that Jesus had much more in common with the Pharisees than both of those other Jewish groups. So Pharisees meant to obey God by following the law, but they made two huge mistakes. The first mistake that they made is that they started to focus on certain parts of the law while rejecting other parts of the law. The second big mistake they made was they began making up their own laws and forcing everyone to follow those laws. There's a, there's a Jewish religious book called the Mishnah, and what the Mishnah is, is it's the, it's the first major written document of the Jewish oral tradition. And in the, in the Mishnah, it says to make fences around the laws, to make fences around the laws. And what that means, to make a fence around a law, is to make up personal rules for yourself so that you won't actually break the laws. An example would be if you're, if you're a recovering alcoholic, you might uh, avoid going to bars, you might go into places where they serve alcohol to avoid temptation. This isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's actually, it's admirable. If you're doing it with the right motivations, it's admirable. And it's also, it's okay to do this if you don't force these rules on other people. So if one alcoholic says, well, I don't go to bars because I don't want to be tempted in that way, but another alcoholic says, well, I'm in recovery, but I can still go to bars and hang out with people, it would be wrong for the first one to tell the second one that he's in sin or that he's wrong. But the Pharisees, they weren't, they weren't behaving in this manner. They weren't doing, they weren't putting up these fences with the right motivations. They were actually, they were actually making these fences, these extra rules, equal with God's law. And the Pharisees, they, be, they became obsessed with their status. They were so focused on what their obedience to the law could gain for them. And they let their zeal for external obedience become more important to them than justice, mercy, and the health of the people around them. In other words, the Pharisees' God became their own outward obedience, which in turn made them extremely arrogant. And what's what's scary is this pharisaical mindset that we're talking about here, it's still alive and well in many churches today. And it's something that we personally, and in our churches, we have to battle, we have to be aware of, because we are all susceptible to arrogance. 
Arrogance is a sin that we can blindly and very easily fall into. And we become arrogant when we become proud of ourselves. When we, we become arrogant when we put our hope in our own obedience instead of where our hope should be in Christ. But the, that doesn't really apply to the Pharisees because in their time they didn't have they didn't have Jesus yet. So where was their hope supposed to be? See, the Pharisees were supposed to put their hope in the promise promises of God and mostly in the promise of a coming Savior, a Messiah. You see, we look back to Jesus. We talk about what happened. We talk about Christ's death and resurrection. But the Pharisees were awaiting a coming king, a coming savior. And the the tragic part about this is, if they wouldn't have been so blinded at the time by their own arrogance, they would have been able to see that the Christ, the Messiah, the king of the Jews that they had long waited for, was in their midst. But they were blinded. In fact, Jesus tells them, that they're blinded many times. In John 5, just one example, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Proverbs twenty six twelve says that there is more hope for a fool than for a man who sees himself as wise. Another thing about arrogance is it, it's really, it's, a, it's, it's very common amongst religious people because religious people are tempted to become proud of their obedience while looking down on others who aren't as obedient as they believe themselves to be. In fact, I was listening to a sermon on the radio the other day um, by an extremely popular American pastor. This guy, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but this guy, um, he has a huge mega church and he always has one of the most downloaded podcast channels. His sermons are listened to all over the world. Um, and I was listening to the sermon, and the whole sermon was about how a man should never be alone with a woman who isn't his wife. And he, he then went on bragging about the extremes he would go to to make sure that he was uh, never alone with a woman who isn't his wife. Now, essentially, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. If you are someone who struggles with, you know, self-control, and that's what you need to do. To pursue holiness, if you need to put that fence up for yourself, to put it another way, then do it. But the problem came when this pastor started telling the men of his congregation that it was essential that they follow this rule and that they never allow themselves to be alone with a woman who isn't their wife. And then he said this, and this is his words, not mine. He said, because a woman who isn't your wife is just a form of temptation. So not only was this sort of objectifying a woman as a, a thing that causes a man to sin, which is bad enough. But he was teaching the congregation a rule that's nowhere to be found in Scripture and demanding that they follow it at all costs to be holy, which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus go, goes on to say to the scribes of the Pharisees, he says, I did not come for the righteous, but the sick. And... Uh, the text we're reading today in Mark, Mark didn't record this part in his story, but Matthew, and when Matthew's telling the same story in Matthew 9, he says this. Jesus tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what is, what is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is literally telling the Pharisees, if you don't consider yourself a sinner, if you're not in need of me, I can't help you. Now I want to point out here that 
I don't think Jesus was being facetious or some sort of smart aleck. Like, a lot of people like to make jokes about Jesus doing that, like he was always kind of smarting off the Pharisees. But I don't think that's what he was doing here. In fact, I think Jesus was encouraging them to actually go and figure out what he was talking about. He was wanting them to go and do some self-evaluation. But the Pharisees obviously didn't because we know what happened in the end. And the Pharisees were blinded and in denial about who they were. And the one thing that should um, help us to want to avoid becoming arrogant is when we become arrogant, we start to have a false view of ourselves. And arrogance doesn't always mean, I know when I think of the word arrogance, I think of someone who's um, just really overconfident or really, you know, cocky and really just way too sure of himself. But oftentimes arrogance can look like someone who feels sorry for themselves all the time. Or someone who plays the victim in every situation. Someone who doesn't listen, doesn't listen to anybody else's words for him. I'm sure many of you probably know someone like this. You probably know someone who never takes responsibility for their own actions. No matter what they've done, it's never their fault. And they just keep running from someone trying to actually help them, to tell them truth about themselves. And you see, a doctor can only help a patient who is willing to trust and put their faith in him. Looking back at the Steve Jobs story, a doctor literally told Steve Jobs that he could be completely cured of his cancer if he would just allow him to perform surgery. But Jobs refused. Jobs thought that he could figure it out on his own. He could figure out how to save himself on his own. He didn't want outside help. So you see that Jesus refuses to help those who are arrogant enough to reject his love and his help and his grace because they believe in themselves. They're self-righteous. That's what the word self-righteous means. I'm righteous by myself. They're proud. And Jesus rejects those who have no need for him. So that's a little bit about who Jesus rejects, but that leaves us with the, the question, well, who does Jesus come for then? Who, who did Jesus come to help? Who did Jesus come to save? And the answer to that question is Jesus comes for the humble and repentant sinner, which leads us to Levi. Now, Le- Levi, we need to know this about Levi. Levi, whom Jesus interacts with in this passage, he was a tax collector. And tax collectors during this time period were, were hated and despised by everyone. Because tax collectors were notorious for their, dis- their dishonesty and their corruption. Tax collectors would oftentimes take more money from people than what was actually required of them to take. And in response to the tax collectors' wickedness, Jewish leaders of the time taught that if a tax collector entered your home, everything in it was declared unclean. Which is just another example of the Pharisees making up laws. This is a pretty this is a pretty harsh rule. If a tax collector came into your house, you had to get rid of everything because it was considered impure then. So this this made people not want to be around tax collectors very much. But the problem is there's no scripture that says that a tax collector is unclean. It was literally a made-up rule. But since the tax collectors were considered ritually unclean and morally corrupt, and most people really respected the Pharisees and believed in their opinion because they were so passionate about God's law, the people believed the Pharisees. And so what happened was where the tax collectors were shamed and shunned and condemned by everyone in the society. Now, it does need to be acknowledged, though, that... Tax collectors during this time 
They knew what they were getting into when they took the job of becoming a tax collector. They knew that they would be hated and they would be shunned. But the trade-off was that, that they could become very wealthy because they could easily take advantage of people. So you kind of had to sell your soul, in a sense, to become a tax collector. So most tax collectors were, in fact, greedy, corrupt individuals. It's just the reality of the situation. But it's interesting to see that Jesus seemed to have a liking for tax collectors. So why is this? Why would, why would Jesus go after people who forfeited their social status? Why would he go after people who take advantage of others? Why would he go after people who embrace this corrupt lifestyle? This seems sort of backwards, right? I think if we keep looking at the life of Levi a little bit, we'll begin to see why. See, Levi here was most likely one of the most hated men in all of Capernaum, where he lived. Because Levi worked what was essentially a toll booth at a busy road close to the shore. And a lot of men during this time were fishermen. That was their profession. So he was constantly in contact with people almost all day. One of the busiest toll booth workers there was. And so he was very well known in his community. His face would be extremely familiar to the people who lived in Capernaum. And this makes it even more incredible, if you think about it, that Jesus approaches him. Because it was not acceptable for rabbis or teachers to come in contact with tax collectors. And Jesus is going to talk to one of the most known ones in the whole town. In fact, they were so hated that rabbis forbid tax collectors from even entering a synagogue. If they wanted to repent, they didn't even have the opportunity to come into God's presence with his people. But, and we, we should praise God for this, really. Jesus never let social norms or made-up rules or irrational traditions stop him from seeking people. In fact, Jesus was drawn towards those whom society had shamed and shunned. You know, in judging off the pattern of Scripture, I think if Jesus were to physically come into our society now, he would most likely seek out a type of person that you or I don't like very much. He would seek out someone who was probably despised and unpopular, maybe even corrupt. There's a Christian writer named Anne Lamott, and um, she had this to say in one of her writings, and I thought this really uh, went along with the scripture reading today. She said, You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. So I think we have to ask ourselves in reading this text, is there a bit of Pharisee in us? And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we would have to say yes to that question. Because, and and I'll be the first to admit, there's a type of person that it would make me angry with Jesus if I saw him having mercy on them. You know, for you, I don't know who it is for you, but maybe it's uh, maybe it's a Republican, or maybe it's a Democrat, or maybe it's your neighbor, or maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's a, maybe it's an apostate who left this church and now slanders it. Maybe it's someone in your family who has wronged you and that you're estranged from. Maybe it's a, a planned, a planned parenthood employee. The point is, we all have someone who we think is unworthy of Christ's love. I always think of this section of scripture when I see one of those, um, viral shame stories going around on the internet. Uh, just this last week, there was a big one. There was this 19-year-old college student who was drunk, and she posted a video to her Instagram account saying many racial slurs. And uh, 
her sorority sisters were in the background just laughing at her. To her horror, though, the very next day, the video had gone viral, and now, a week later, it's been seen by millions upon millions of people all over the world. And it's been covered by every major media outlet in the United States. And I think it's safe to say that this girl probably thinks her life is ruined because this story will likely follow her wherever she goes. And if you just read the stuff that's been written about her on the Internet, you'll see that she's being shamed and shunned and condemned by just about everyone who has heard this story. You know, when I, when I, when I watched that video, it was, it was sin what she was doing, but I can't help but think this is the type of person that Jesus would probably walk up to as a crowd follows him. Look her straight in the eye and say, follow me. Because I'm willing to bet that this girl, now being in the predicament that she's in, knows that she is sick and knows she needs to be healed and knows she needs love. You see, once you've embraced how sinful you are, once you've been broken, once you've been exposed before and opened up, you're a lot easier to be ministered to. My wife and I have a friend who just this past weekend uh, he came over and confessed a ton of sin that he'd been hiding for a long time. And he sat in front of us, and he just sobbed, and he was shaking, and he was so humiliated and kept saying, please forgive me. And he kept saying, I'm so sorry for how my sin is going to affect you guys. And my wife and I looked back at him, and we said, you know, it's, condemn- it's, it's forgiven. Don't condemn yourself. But the only reason that we were allowed to do that is because we have been in his seat before. We have both had experienced times where our sin was exposed and we were humiliated and broken and embarrassed. And we had to acknowledge how our own sin had harmed others. And luckily for us, we've both had people sit across from us who absorbed, who absorbed the wounds that we inflicted on them. Yet they still put their hand on their shoulder and, their, and they said, it's over, you're forgiven. Now, we need to acknowledge this grace sounds amazing, but Jesus never approves of sinful behavior, of course. He never approves of sinful choices or lifestyles. I mean, Jesus certainly didn't approve of what the tax collector Levi did for a living. I mean, we know he didn't approve from stealing from people. We certainly know that he didn't approve of what prostitutes did for a living. But I am confident that Jesus would seek out the shamed and the shunned and those rejected by society because they're in a spot to acknowledge their own depravity and their own need. This is exactly what Jesus is doing with Levi. I mean, just picture yourself as a tax collector during this time. Everyone hates you. No one will even let you into their house because the Pharisees taught everyone that you would contaminate all their possessions. And you're not even allowed to go to church. Even if you wanted to change, you're not welcome in the church because of your past history. In the Mishnah, again, we see that the Jews, the Jews actually held the tax collectors in the same category as um, murderers and thieves. So because of this, because of the Pharisees' teaching at the time, the tax collectors kind of became a fraternity of sorts. They only had each other. The only community you really had if you were a tax collector were other tax collectors. So it's interesting to see that when Jesus told Levi to follow him, Levi immediately left his tax booth behind and followed him. 
And this may seem like he's just, you know, getting up, like, I want to see what this guy's interested in. But there's actually a lot more going on here. You see, Levi, he's leaving his job, and he's really leaving his identity, and he's leaving the only form of community he has to be with Jesus. In other words, I think what we can gather from this text is that Levi repented here. So why did Levi do this? Why would he leave everything behind to follow Jesus? I believe Levi did this because he was so overwhelmed with gratefulness and thanksgiving that Jesus would want to be with him, knowing who he was and what he had done. And Jesus at this time was pretty famous. He had a big following everywhere he went. So there was a big crowd following as he as he goes up to this guy that everybody shuns. And I also think that Levi probably learned that the pursuit of material possessions and the wretched, dishonest lifestyle he was living wasn't fulfilling. So what does Jesus do? Jesus offers him an opportunity to leave it, and Levi takes full advantage of Jesus' opportunity. And the reason that I think that Levi was overwhelmed with gratefulness and thanksgiving is because Levi throws a party for Jesus. The Greek word for recline in verse 15 is the word katechiste. And it's translated as recline, and we think of that as, you know, probably just sitting in a lazy board or something, but it, it, it's a packed word. It means a lot more. To recline meant that you were having a festive meal or a banquet or some sorts. That's what the word catechiste means. So just picture this scene in your mind with me for a minute. Jesus calls Levi, and Levi is so excited that Jesus has called him that he leaves his job and everything he knows, and he invites all of his other sinful, rejected, shamed, tax-collecting friends over to celebrate and meet this rabbi who has accepted him. Honestly, I think this is one of the best pictures of evangelism in the entire Bible. Because what's happening is Levi is so excited that Jesus accepted him that he invites all of his other sinful friends over to be with each other, to have a party, to eat and to drink and to laugh. When we think of you know, evangelism, we usually think of a Bible study or handing out a tract or something. And I'm not condemning those things. I think those things can be good, but evangelism should be more about celebrating Jesus' love for us and inviting others into his love, which is what Levi is doing here. It's just a pure excitement that someone will actually love us tax collectors. Come and meet this guy. But now when we compare Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the tax collectors, we learn that Jesus' love does one of two things. It either softens or it hardens. You see, Levi was corrupt and greedy and had probably stolen a lot of money and done a lot of other really sinful things. But Jesus' love softened Levi and it hardened the Pharisees. Jesus' love softened another tax tax collector named Zacchaeus, and his story is in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read that to you. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried down and came down and received Jesus joyfully. 
So when they saw it, they being the Pharisees, so when they saw it, they all grumbled, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So in these two stories of Jesus' interactions with tax collectors, we see that his love softened the shamed and the shunned. His pursuit of them created repentant, humble, grateful, giving hearts. Levi is so thankful that he throws a party for Jesus, and Zacchaeus is so thankful that he pledges to give half of everything he owns to the poor, and he commits to going to the people he's defrauded and giving more back of what he than what he took from them originally. In contrast, in both stories, we also see that Jesus has loved for the shunned of society hardened the Pharisees' heart. They grumbled and gossiped about Jesus. They questioned his love for sinners and would eventually be the people who had him killed. Jesus' rejection of their made-up religious laws and traditions and his love for the shamed and shunned hardened their hearts and angered them to the point of murder. The Pharisees' arrogance and self-righteousness had so blinded them that they believed that the upholding of the law, that obedience, and their own tradition, their own laws, was what earned someone the right to be loved and accepted. Whereas Jesus sees humans for what we are, sinners, yet image bearers of God. And with Jesus, you don't have to earn love. You are able to accept it freely through repentance. One last parable for you comparing uh, tax collectors and the Pharisees. Luke 18, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus said this, he said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbled, humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. And though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. And we need to remember that the Lord mocks the proud, but is gracious to the humble. So to answer our question, who did Jesus come for? Jesus came for the humble. Jesus came for those who embrace truth. Jesus came for those who know their need for him. Jesus came for those who desire to keep his statutes and submit to his will. Friends, Jesus came, he came for sinners, of which we all are. Let's pray together.
Father, I pray that we would we would humble ourselves before you today, knowing that we are never not in need of your saving grace. When we are tempted to become arrogant, may we remember Christ nailed to a tree for our own sins. When we are tempted to look down on others, may we remember the log in our own eye before we attempt to remove the speck in our brother's eye. Father, this is a scary request, but I pray that you would show us our own sin. And I ask that when you do show us our sin, that we would remember the words of our father in the faith, Paul, when he said that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, help us to live a life of repentance. And Father, we beg you to sanctify us into the image of your son. In his name, we ask these things together. Amen.